It's Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. Present suffering and future glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Colossians 1 verse 15 uh, to 20. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have this supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Okay. Our Christian faith is not just a set of beliefs or a moral code or a religious system. When it really comes down to it, Christianity is about a living person. Jesus, who we believe as Christians is the Christ or the Messiah. So we are not just people of a book as Christians. We're not just people of a particular way of life or a particular viewpoints, even though those things can be very important. Being Christians really is about our connection to that person, Jesus, trusting ourselves to him, following him, putting our hope in him. And the good news that we have to share with others in the world is news of that person, Jesus Christ. Now, we must never forget that because even really good things can end up replacing Jesus. You know, even our Bibles or our church or our theology, instead of leading us to Jesus, they can end up taking his place in our lives if they become the point in themselves instead of leading us to Jesus. Now in Colossians 1 here, Paul includes these wonderful lines of poetry. It's a kind of song or hymn, we might call it, and they, the words are all about Jesus. The poem summarises not so much what it is, but who it is 
who constitutes our faith as Christians. And it's not a static statement, it's not just saying this is who Jesus is, but also this is what Jesus is doing. This is where Jesus is going with things and with us. So our faith is actually, Paul says, part of of an unfolding story that is heading towards a goal, and Jesus is bringing that goal about. Now we don't know whether Paul himself wrote these few lines, uh, or he may, it's quite possible, he's quoting what was already a well-known sort of song or poem in the early church to help people. Perhaps they couldn't all read, so they would have these kind of lines of poetry to help them remember who it is they believe in. Uh, but the poem here, so this is verses 15 to, to 20, the poem is actually um, structured in two parallel halves. And there are certain key phrases in the first half that are then repeated in the second half. So the phrase is, he is firstborn in him, all things, things in heaven and on earth, through him and for him. Those phrases are all repeated in the two halves of this poem. And by doing that, you might think, well, that's interesting, but who cares? By doing that, uh, the poem is telling us two very important things about Jesus. It's telling us that he is Lord of creation. That's the first half of this poem. And then it tells us that he is Lord of a new creation. And that's the second half of the poem. He's Lord of creation and of new creation. So both halves of this poem begin with creation language from the Bible. So the first half, in verse 15, the first half begins with the phrase, he is the image of God. The second half, uh, sort of in the, it sort of starts in the middle of our verse 18, uh, we, we're told he is the beginning. So he is the image of God and he is the beginning. Those two phrases, image of God and beginning, are both taken from Genesis 1. But what, as I say, what's happening is the first half of the poem is telling us about the original creation of everything, the universe, but the second half is telling us about a new creation, or I, I, might, I think I prefer to say a recreation of all things. So it tells us, this poem, that God originally made everything through Jesus Christ. Jesus was there at the beginning. But it also tells us that God is now remaking everything through Jesus as well. And that means Jesus is is Lord or is head or as the one of the words Paul uses, Jesus is supreme in every inch and in every direction of this universe. Time and space, we might say. So looking back and looking forward or looking top to bottom in this universe, Jesus Christ is Lord of everything, of the world as it is, and he is Lord of the new world that is appearing and arriving by his grace. Now, that fr- the phrase firstborn that we read twice, uh, verse 15 and verse 18, is actually about that, about Jesus being Lord who is, who is shaping the future of things. Uh, firstborn in the Bible does not just mean he came first. In the Bible, it also has to do with someone's status or position, particularly in terms of the future. Uh, you may know this already, but in, in the ancient world of the Bible, the firstborn in a family held a very important place because the firstborn was the one who would take on the leadership of the family into its next chapter, the next generation. Uh, The firstborn would inherit everything that belonged to that family and was responsible, therefore, to take that family's hopes uh, forward 
into the future. Well, Jesus, we're told, verse 15, is the firstborn of all creation, of everything. Because in him, it says, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay, so the universe and everything in it belongs to Jesus. He's the one who, from the beginning, was taking things forward. But, but firstborn is repeated again in verse 18, which says he is also the firstborn from among the dead. Now that, that I believe, is about something, something new emerging from the rubble. Uh, we, it, we might look around us at God's creation, including ourselves and our own lives, and we might think that it's all somehow dying or dead. Uh, but Jesus, we're told here, is the firstborn from among the dead. Out of death comes this new life. Uh, think, think of the, you know, the picture of the firstborn in the family again. It, it might be as if, you know, as if we looked around and we thought, well, there's no firstborn, there's no one, you know, there's no one to take the story forward, we might think. It looks like the family line's dead. Uh, we're just winding down and fading away and no one's taking things forward. But suddenly, Paul says, a, a firstborn appears from among the dead. Suddenly, what's, from what seemed dead, if we look at the world, a new person appears. Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to inherit it all, if you like, and to take it all forwards into his new future. That's about, so the first, first point was about the original creation. This point, firstborn from the dead, is about the new creation that Jesus has begun. And it all means that things are going somewhere. Everything has a direction, a purpose, a reason, a meaning, and that purpose is, we're told here, bound up completely with Jesus and who he is. Jesus is the one who is leading it all forward now, including us and our lives. And that's why it's so important that we, we focus our lives on Jesus. You know, this word faith, someone has suggested quite recently, a good word for understanding what faith means is allegiance, this idea that we actually, we're going to, Put our lives in with Jesus, our lot in with him, because he is the one who we believe will take us forward uh, in all things. Now, how is he doing this? Well, there's a really, really interesting word in verse 17. It says in verse 17, in, in Christ, all things uh, sunistemi, that's the Greek word, sunistemi, that's the word Paul uses. Now, what does that mean? Sun in Greek means together. Histemi means to stand, right? So to stand together. In Christ, all things will stand together. The idea is of, of things being put together again so that they cohere, we might say, so that they're brought to where they should be in a kind of unity. Uh, it's like Jesus is making sense of it all. He's bringing everything together, Paul says, gathering all up into the way it should be so that things can stand in their right place, in a good place, in a kind of unity and wholeness. In other words, Jesus is putting everything back together. At the beginning of the Bible, you know, remember Paul said this is, he's the first one from the dead, from what seemed dead. Well, in the, at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the word death there is used to describe creation when it's pulled apart. Okay, so if you read Genesis 3, um, God speaks about death coming and then he describes it as all these kinds of divisions and separations 
between us and the earth, which becomes a, a, a sort of uh, difficult relationship between us and each other, the human beings, and between us and God, a kind of exile. So, so in, in Genesis, remember, Paul's got Genesis in his mind when he writes this. The word death is, a, is all about things being pulled apart, separated, you know, hostility and, and difficulties pushing us apart from each other, from God, from even from the, the physical world around us. That's death. But, but Paul says here, out of death comes, comes Christ, life. The firstborn from the dead, and the word he uses for what Jesus is doing is he's bringing it all back together. What death pulled apart, Jesus is now, that Greek word, sunistemi, he's bringing it all to stand together again. It's, it's quite similar to the thought that's then repeated at the end of the poem in verse 20, where it says God is reconciling all things. He is making peace through Jesus Christ. Again, the idea of those words, reconcile and make peace, are of God bringing things together to the way they should be. And it suggests as well, in verse 18, that the place where God begins doing that is in the church. So when he says Christ is before all things and in all, him all things come together, Paul then immediately says he's the head of the body, the church. I, I think he, it's... That, that phrase, by the way, he is the head of the body, the church, is kind of the, the central point in this poem of two halves. Uh, it's, it's kind of a central pivot between the first half and the second half, where the poem goes from speaking about original creation through to new creation, and the church is there in the middle, as if that's where God begins, this new creation. Where do we see the new creation the recreation of things starting to become real, we should see it in the church of Jesus. In this fellowship, we should see it in the churches dotted around the world as God does this amazing work in people's lives and then through his people out in the world of bringing things together. Okay, so in the church, God, we should be able to see that in us and then through us as we live our daily lives out there. Now, I know some of you enjoy watching Repair Shop. Sarah and I really like watching Repair Shop. It's, it's fascinating. People bring, in, in case you don't know, people bring in an old object that's very, very special to them for some reason. But it's old, it's become damaged perhaps, it's become worn out, sometimes it's completely falling apart. And this team of expert craftspeople set about restoring it in the most amazing ways. I mean, it's fascinating to watch what they can do. You know, the skill of, of these craftsmen and craftswomen and, and the, what they do and how it, it brings what looked completely worn out, completely non-functional sometimes or completely lost. And they just restore it with so much skill and care back to its former glory, back to its former function as it should be. And, and nearly always when they come and see what they've done, there's tears and, and just a real sense of joy. And, and you, you, it's true, sometimes you look at the before and after they do at the end of the programme and, and you marvel about how these people can transform what seemed lost into something so wonderful again. But I think that's, a, that's very much like God's recreation of the world and of us. You know, we and the world are that precious object. 
And God is that expert craftsman who can do what almost seemed impossible sometimes, restoring us to what we were made to be. And the church, therefore, should have something of that about it. The church should have something of God's repair shop about it. I think that's something, I found that a challenge as I thought about that. You know, does church have that feel about it? God's repair shop. And our mission out in the world, if I can carry on with the illustration of repair shop, maybe it's a bit like us taking that on tour. You know, when we go out from this place, we're taking that on tour. We're bringing God's recreating skill to our communities in which we live and to our world. Think about that as you live your life and as you look at the community you live among that's around you. How can we bring God, God into these situations that we are part of, you know, the people, the relationships, the, the communities, the towns, the villages? How can we bring God into those situations so that people will marvel at the new creation that God brings to things? So back to our poem in Colossians 1. It says, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. Jesus is risen from the dead. He is alive forevermore. And that means death and sin and decay do not have the final say in our lives or in the wider universe. Because In Jesus' death and resurrection, because of what he's done, because he's now Lord, he is supreme over even death itself. He is the firstborn, the inheritor, remember, the future hope in life and death and everything that you can think of. And And it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus reconciles things, all things, makes peace through the blood of his cross. The cross is mentioned at the end of the poem. We'll be taking communion in a moment where we ourselves as a church, Jesus instructed us, one thing you must remember Jesus said, is that I gave my life for you on the cross. At the heart of Jesus' story, the heart of who he is, and therefore who God is, is the cross. Verse 20 says, the cross is the great reconciler of all things. His death, his blood shed for us is the peace of the world. Something happened in Jesus' death on the cross that is the mending of our lives. It has the power to mend this universe. It's like in his death, he has buried the old story, and in his resurrection, a whole new chapter has begun. Now, how is that so? How does the cross do that? Well, the Bible actually explores that from many different angles. It doesn't just give one answer to that question. Some of the answers and angles on which the Bible explains the cross we'll see in this letter. Uh, Just from from Colossians, we'll see how, for example, Christ's death takes away our hostility and alienation towards God. We'll see how it takes away what is evil and turns things into good. 
we will see how Christ's death, we're told, has disarmed the corrupt powers of the world. We'll see that it is, Paul says later on, that it has cancelled out our sin and that any accusation that might stand against us has now been nailed there to the cross so that we're forgiven. We will see how the cross unites us to Jesus in his death and resurrection and brings us new life so that Paul says we're kind of wrapped up or hidden within the plans of God. All of that, all of those are just just different angles on which Paul looks at the cross and explains what it can do for you. But here in these verses in Colossians 1, we have perhaps the biggest, the widest view of it all. It says Jesus' death and resurrection are the reconciling the mending, the bringing back together of all things in heaven and on earth. Heaven and earth, God's life and our life becoming one. Jesus is bringing together what was out of sync. He is reconciling what was torn apart, remember. Making peace where there's disunity or strife. Creating life where there was death. Jesus' death is the mending of creation. And notice that it says all this happens because all things are being reconciled to God. He is reconciling all things to himself. God is at the centre of all this. And if he wasn't, it wouldn't work. At the centre of this reconciling, you know, you might say, well, where's everything being brought together to? We're told it's all being brought together to God, who is at the centre of it all. That's why it works, because God is at the centre of it. Without him, there could be no peace, ultimately. There could be no harmony. There could be no completeness to the life of this world. But Jesus, as we're told, in Jesus, heaven and earth are brought together again. God and mankind and this universe we live in are brought into unity. One of the wonderful things about the communion table is its, is its visible demonstration of that, gospel, that part of the gospel. Christ is at the middle and we all come to this table. I know we sit in our rows. It's a shame, really. Perhaps we should sit in a circle sometimes when we do communion. Because really, you've got to remember, that's what they did. They were, they were together at the table. You know, they'd put their things down and come around a table and Jesus was there with them with bread and wine. Try and, when we take communion in a minute, try and visualise that. You know, here's a table in our midst. Jesus invites us to it. And just like Paul says, it, it brings us all together to him. And, and amazingly, Paul says here, it was God's pleasure to do this. For God was pleased to have all of that happen through Jesus. I think that's a bit like when, you know, if we, if we do something kind for someone and they say, oh, thank you. And we say, it's my pleasure. God saves us and we say, thank you, Lord. And he says, it's my pleasure. It's what I wanted to do for you. I think that's wonderful. It was God's pleasure, he says, to do this. All, all his fullness, he was pleased to have dwell in Christ so that he could reconcile everything to himself through Christ, even by shedding his blood on the cross. What makes God glad? Well, Paul says one thing that really makes God glad is bringing things together to himself through Jesus, even if it cost him the suffering of the cross. Hebrews 12 says it like this, for the joy that was set ahead of him, Jesus endured the cross. 
He could see the joy that would come by bringing us back to himself. What is it God loves to do? He loves to save things. He loves to mend things, to redeem things, to restore things. His gladness is bound up in seeing our gladness when we discover his grace. Now I began, I'm going to finish now before we take communion, but I began by reminding you that Christianity is not just a set of opinions or some religious system, it is a person. It is Jesus Christ. The risen, living Jesus is the focus of our faith, and nothing else must take his place. And now we've seen you know, some of these, these incredible lines of poetry Paul wrote, which are all about Jesus. He is before all things, creator and reconciler. He is in all things supreme. And I hope those words thrill us. I hope the theology thrills us. I hope that the hope thrills us. But remember the words are all about Jesus. The theology is all about Jesus. And the hope that we have is all because of Jesus. So I'm not going to ask you if you've understood it all. I'm not going to ask you if your life's all together. I'm not going to ask you how much you know or how religious you are or what sort of life you've lived until now. I'm not going to ask you if you like church or how much you know the Bible or whether you've done well for yourself. It doesn't matter. I simply want to point you to Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you that the one who is at the centre of this universe, the one that we call God, has a face and a name for us. And this God has a heart like no other, a heart that's so generous that it is deep enough to encompass the whole universe. And I'm going to tell you that that God loves you and that Jesus died for you on the cross. That's how much he loves you. Not because there was anything in it for him, but because he was pleased to do it for you. And I'm going to tell you that that same Jesus then rose again for you. And that he calls you to trust him today. Whatever you've been, whatever you know or don't know, however religious or unreligious you are, God has a name, and that name is Jesus. And he gave his life for you and then rose again. So trust him and all will be well. Because in all things, in every direction, top to bottom, behind and ahead, Jesus Christ is supreme.